Kel definitely, of Jim and myself and Kel, he's definitely the numbers guy. And you can only imagine how fun elders meetings are. I mean, it's just a kick to get to, to look at those numbers. And uh, the way that he kind of softens us up towards that, uh, this last elders meeting we had at his house, and he's got a fire pit, this new fire pit, and we were sitting around the fire pit, and we actually sat there and had s'mores. So just so you know how your elders meet, we meet around s'mores while Kel's talking to us about numbers. Listen, two quick announcements, two quick family, uh, family kinds of items. And by the way, for those of you who are newer, just a heads up that what you just heard, we just look to periodically gather the family and say, here is what is going on with our church. Um, and these are, these are how the funds, for instance, which is, which is a part of church ministry, are being distributed and spent and all of that. And as Cal said, uh, there's no big mystery or secret here. We don't have a secret locked room where this goes on. We do this out in the open. We think that's how the Lord would want it. And yet there are decision makers and people who are, you know, making decisions on, on how things are done. So if you have any questions about that, concerns about that, you know, celebrations about that, whatever, it's your funds that we're talking about as we, as we, as we talk about these things. Two more quick announcements. There's a women's retreat coming up, and it's just been uh, an awesome thing. Lots of great planning has been going on for it. The dates for it are October 12th through 14th. It's at Mission Springs in Santa Cruz. The cost is $155, and Audrey, raise your hand. I just saw you. Audrey and Jenny Cook, where are you at? Uh, these are the two ladies you would want to come and talk to about that. All right, uh, James chapter 4 is where we're at. I used to be really kind of raptured with the, with the, with the, the gunslinger of the Old West. And I still love a good Western story. And of course, you know, Western folklore and reality kind of bleed a little bit like fishing stories, you know, where, where it's hard to separate probably history from folklore, even while these guys were, were still alive. But some of you have heard of, you know, Wild Bill Hickok, who was a lawman. And all of these guys I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring up three for you right now. They all kind of live by this adage, you know, of live by the sword, die by the sword kind of thing. If you're going to pack a gun and use that and be known by that, uh, it's a dangerous thing to be involved in. Wild Bill Hickok was a, a lawman who was shot in the back while playing poker. Of all things, he was holding a hand that was known as a dead man's hand. Just a little bit of trivia. Um, some of you know of Billy the Kid. Uh, this was an outlaw who was captured, and he was set to be killed for his crimes of, of murder and, and general thievery and those kinds of things. He escaped, and for the last three months of his life, he was on the run, and he was finally shot and killed by Sheriff Pat Garrett at the ripe old age of 21. And then this is Wyatt Earp, just three kind of random names here. Uh, this was a lawman who died in the exciting way of died in his sleep. So amazingly, of all the gun battles and bullets that must have whizzed by this guy's body, he dies, dies while sleeping. Um, here's, why, here's why I'm talking about this in church, and as we translate this to the spiritual life. As a Christian, you are taking a stand, you are stepping into an arena, so to speak, and I guess you could say even you're, you're packing heat, Right? that the second you have the Spirit of God in you, you become a target. Not only that, you are privy to and made available to all kinds of resources, but the point is this, you better know whose side you're on, and you better keep vigilant in your life. I don't know what it's like to pack heat and, and to have you know, gone back and forth with gangs in the Old West, but I can assure you when you're eating, you, you're kind of looking over your shoulder. You know, if you're playing poker, whatever you're doing, you're kind of looking around. James chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Um, and just listen for some of the enemies that must be faced. We see three of them, at least here in this passage. The flesh, the world, and the devil. Follow along, uh, James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you hear it? Do you hear the enemies that that were to be vigilant and aware of? And there's even strategy laid out here. We're not going to get too much into what resisting the devil looks like, but just those words even are marching orders, right? There's a resistance, not a go looking for the fight kind of idea there. And we're going to track some of that uh, as, as we move along in the weeks ahead. Now back to the gunslinger of the Old West motif. Think of how many gunslingers you would look at and attach this attribute to them, humility. If you think of a gunslinger, you don't naturally associate, wow, that's a really humble gunslinger, right? Isn't there a sort of a bravado there? There's a, there's a bragging, right, about, about how fast you are with your pistol, how many people you've killed, whatever it might be. But make no mistake, a Christian is a gunslinger of sorts. And a Christian is to be and is a humble gunslinger. Two ideas that mash up and you go, man, that doesn't fit naturally and normally, but that's exactly this picture. We are in a war and we're humble. Look at verse 6. We're going to take two verses this morning. Um, and and uh, verse 6 says this, But he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want you to look at your hand right now. You can pick either hand, look at it. How many fingers do you see? Include your thumb. Five. Okay, most of you see five. Unless there was an accident or something, you have five fingers on one hand. Those five fingers can be a reminder. Look at the first five words. Maybe your translation is slightly different. But look at the first five words of verse six. But he gives more grace. There's probably not a better promise than that one right there. What a gift those five words are. This week, as you look at your hand and you see five fingers staring back at you, I want you to think, but he gives more grace. We just sang about the amazing grace of God. Now, there are problems uh, that tend to arise in life. And all God's people said? Amen. Right. We need to say that with some, some gusto. There are problems that arise in life. Amen. Come on and preach it, right? Now, let me just get you primed a little bit. There's disease that rots the body. There are people at work that drive you crazy. There's that one fellow student that makes going to school difficult. There's things in life that just don't go your way. Give me some more. Call out to me what makes life hard, what problems there are in life. Just call them out. Let me hear some. Bills you can't pay. What else? Traffic. Amen to that. What else? Plumbing. 
Cars. What else? Screaming. Now you're getting it. I want to hear more at once. Screaming kids. Can I get a witness? What else we got? Computer problems, right? Made to make our lives easier. What? Homework. Yes. And all the students said amen. We Grading homework. All right, now. Now we got it going on. Now here's what's interesting. We could go on and on with this. Let me, let me take the problems and turn them inward for a second. The mistakes that I have made that I wish that I had. Words that have come flying out of my mouth that I wish with all that's in me that I, that I could unsay them and they didn't have their devastating effects after I've already spoken to them. And maybe worst of all, because of the, the root that's severed with this, is a love for a Savior that's grown cold, or worse, is being pushed away. Remember from last week that you adulterous people, there's cheating going on, and it's not your love for God, it's you running from God. There are problems that arise in this life, and we all can identify with them. We all understand that those things go on. Here's the beauty, is that God gives more grace in that. Now, without the toils of this life, our, our necessity for this grace would become more unapparent. When it says, but he gives more grace, we attach these things to the front of it to say, these things are going on, but he gives more grace. There's sin that I've tried to conquer for years, and it's back again, but he gives more grace. There's these people in my life, but he gives more grace. I'm one of those people in my life. The passions are at war in me, but he gives more grace. One of the great ways to see the heart of God on this is to just read about Jesus interacting with different kinds of people. When you see Jesus interacting with different kinds of people, you get a sense for the heart of God's greatest word people. There's a woman at the well who's doing chores, and Jesus talks to her, and you see grace come pouring out like water in her life. There's a guy, Matthew, who's just on the job, he's just doing his thing, and Jesus calls him and ushers him by grace, by undeserved favor, to say, come and follow me, leave that lifestyle behind Come and follow me. There's this guy named Nicodemus who's kind of the socially elite, which back in the day that meant you were religious. And he comes to Jesus by night, probably for fear of reprisal, that he's seeking out this kind of rogue Messiah who's roaming the countryside. And grace comes pouring out of Jesus' mouth toward this man. More grace when you've run out of options, of hope, of endurance, of joy, of love. And even when you've run out on God, remember that he gives more grace. Think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son story could just as aptly be named the gracious father. We most often call it the prodigal son. It's from our vantage point. But the key, lynch part of that whole story is the father, right, whose arms are open and he's running to meet the kid. That's in full deserving of something completely different. I was so excited this week because I get to talk about the grace of God. I mean, that is just a fun topic to think about and study about and soak in. And it's freely available for any Christian at any time to be doing that. And I think as believers, that ought to be just bubbling out of our life. We're a thankful people because 
he gives more grace. God is tirelessly on your side. He never stops initiating as a lover. He never stops being generous as a giving God. He's never had it up to here with you. You ever say that? Man, I've just about had enough. God's never just about had enough in his patience toward us. It's overwhelming. It puts a lightness in the step of his children. Now, we may forfeit much when we run from God, rebel against God, and even deny God, but we don't lose out on his grace. I want to walk for you just uh, just through a couple of ideas about God's amazing grace. Um, and, and as you look at these, what you're going to see are some of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. On our website is a doctrinal statement. These are things that, that we believe as a church, that we're gathered around as the church. There's all kinds of side issues that we may disagree on, but these are some fundamental truths. Here's one of them. God's amazing grace elected us. The Father loved and adopted us to be holy and beloved long before we could even do a whisper of something back for God. That's election. God's amazing grace justifies us. Romans 3.24 says this, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's amazing grace saves us. Ephesians 2.8 says this, By grace you have been saved through faith. God's amazing grace strengthens, strengthens and sustains us. 2 Timothy 2.1 says this, Listen, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God's amazing grace helps us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a minute. You can save your place in James because we'll be back there. But in Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to see it as I read along. Here's what's beautiful. Lastly, we can't earn God's amazing grace. By definition, you can't earn God's grace. The second you earn it, what does it become? Payment. It's wages, right? You did this, I'll pay you that for it. You cannot earn God's amazing grace. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you notice who's doing all of this doing, by the way? God, God, God. He seated us. He saved us. He sought us out. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, you are free as a Christian. You're free. Here's one of the biggest freedoms that you have. You are free from feeling like you need to live up to your end of the bargain. 
You ever feel that way in your walk with God? God's done this for me. I know that I rest and I believe in that. Now I've got to do this to hold up my end of the bargain. Here's the gospel. There is no your end of the bargain. You can't add anything to what Christ has already done for you. That's the gospel. You're a sinner in need of grace, in need of forgiveness, in need of sustaining power to overcome the sins in this life and to be washed and purified forevermore. And that was accomplished 2,000 years ago on a cross and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. I was talking about this with my daughter this week at evening time. We were just sitting there and we were talking and reading from a little Bible book. And, and um, she gets this great look on her face, third grade. She looks at me and she goes, but Dad, that's not fair. Now, she has had before these things, this, this heart that says, you know, we pray to Jesus, but who prays for Jesus? She's thinking about God in those kinds of terms. I love it. She looks at me and says, but Dad, that's not fair. Now, I didn't say this quite so eloquently, but I've had a few days. Now, here's what I should have said. Here's what I, here's what I should have said. Um, you know what? To our great benefit and to God's great glory, you're right. It's not fair. It's not fair. To our benefit and to God's glory, that's not an even exchange, is it? I mumbled something totally different that was r- ridiculous. But I've had a few days now. But don't you love the heart of third grade that looks at that exchange and says, that's not fair for God. John 1.16 says it this way, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, I don't know the last time that you really, really, really needed a cup of water. But when you're really thirsty, just a cup of water is an amazing gift, is it not? And you just drink that thing down. If it's cold, all the better for me. And a cup of water can be like grace of God. And if that cup of water is the grace of God in that moment, and you just think of the grace of God like a cup of water that you're drinking down. I know the metaphor breaks apart a little bit because you don't drink salt water, but imagine yourself standing at the ocean witnessing a scene like this. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Like waves on the seashore as they just keep coming out of the great and vast abundance of the sea. When is that going to stop? In your lifetime, it has never ceased. I go to the beach a lot. It's constantly coming in, wave upon wave of grace. Now, we can kind of measure the ocean. I've flown over much of our oceans. It's huge, but we can still measure it. How powerful to think that even those who fly over oceans and are marveling at how big it is, that's, that's a small picture of the abundance of God. The grace given to us, but he gives more grace, is out of the abundance of God. That is a great message. Now, God wants to communicate the message of grace so loudly that the whole story from creation to present to things to come, is a story of grace. You look for it. You start in Genesis and you start looking for this 
weaving of grace through the entire story. Ours is a story start to finish of God's grace. Now, not only does he want to communicate grace, he also wants to make it clear who receives this grace. Look back at James 4, 6 now. Back into James, it says this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm going to ask non-rhetorical questions. What does that mean? I want a response. Okay, here we go. Who is James contrasting in verse 6? The proud and the humble. That's right. Um, Who gets the grace? Who gets opposed? Who, uh, Who is doing the opposing? Whoa. Let that land on you for a second. Who are you opposed by? You're opposed by God. If you read of how God has revealed himself to us and the might and the power, we usually look at it from a standpoint of being on God's team, don't we? We read a psalm that says, strike down those who are your enemies. Strike down those who are in opposition to you, God. Keep us safe in your hands. Those kinds of themes emerge. Now, what does it look like to have almighty, holy God being opposed to you and your efforts and what you're about and what you're doing? The proud and the humble are being contrasted here. The the ones who get grace are the humble. The ones who are opposed are the proud. Now, I can already hear some of you and perhaps some of those that you interact with will say this. Wait a minute. Are you saying that there are some who get the grace of God and some who don't get the grace of God? And I believe in a big God with lots of grace and enough grace for everyone. What a divisive message you are to preach that. It's some sort of holy club and you're making all the rules for that. I hope that you've heard something like those kinds of messages coming back. Because the gospel divides. Jesus divides. It will always be an uncomfortable message. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Earthly wisdom, godly wisdom. If you've lived your life and built your life on a culture of earthly wisdom, then when you're confronted by supernatural, heavenly wisdom, it flies in the face of that. It feels bad. It it angers people. It gets them up in arms. Uh, turn, turn to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Again, I want you to just see this. You can go and read the whole chapter in context, but I want to point out a couple of verses. I could turn to so many different places here, but we're going we're gonna to just go to Romans 5. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 of Romans 5 says this. Through Him, previous words are Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Who is it that gains access to the grace? It's those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Skip it down to verse 15. Now Paul goes into this whole dialogue about Adam and how his one sin opened the door for sin for all mankind. And that there would be a second Adam that would be Jesus Christ, and his one sacrifice would open the way for life and freedom from that sin to the many. So that's what he's talking about. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The answer to someone saying that would be this. I too believe in a giant God who has grace to save enough for many. But I read the Bible and what I see is this. Jesus talked so many times, made it unmistakable there were sheep and goats. There were weeds and wheat. There were those who were the true sons and daughters, and there were those who were not. Verses 20 to 21 go on to talk about grace abounding in the face of our sin. Grace reigning in this life heralds the beauty of grace. So who gets this grace? Those who humbly accept it. Now, as a quick aside, let me talk for a quick moment about common grace. Common grace is a term that the theologians through the years have kind of used um, to say there's different kinds of God's grace. If grace is the unmerited favor of God, there is a sense that everyone receives the grace of God. Is it not true? Matthew 5.45, Jesus is talking, he says this, He makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now here's what's interesting. He's making this point. He goes on to make this point. He makes a distinction between those who receive this common grace, healing, joy in marriage, beauty of creation, a scrumptious meal, laughter, friendship. You can go on and on. These are things you can enjoy while being in complete rebellion of God. Right? It's common grace. Jesus goes on to point out those who receive this common grace and those who are the true children of God. That's his term. You can go read it in Matthew chapter 5. The Bible spells out truth that there's grace and more grace to receive. And it also responds, uh, it also spells out how to respond to to that truth. In this case, humble obedience, which James is going to go on to define. Look back at James for a minute with me. In James, the next few verses, James, in essence, gives his own version of the Ten Commandments. Now, he's not negating the law and all those kinds of things, but he gives ten really clear um, uh, imperatives, things that you are to do. And we're going to, we're going to kind of tackle those in, in the next couple of weeks, but here they are in a nutshell. Submit, resist, draw close, Cleanse, purify, be miserable, be sorrowful, cry, and those aren't tears of joy. Be serious, be humble. That's what he's going to go on to talk about. Now here's an interesting thought. Sometimes people will come uh, and, and we'll say to ourselves, I don't know the will of God. I don't know the will of God in my life. Well, for those of you sitting in this room, now you do. Now, now just go do it. There they are. They're in black and white. Sometimes people say this, I'm waiting to hear from God. Don't raise your hand, but have you used that before? I mean, it sounds so spiritual. It gets you the spiritual brownie points. You get to save face. You seem really spiritual. Far and above other people. Wow, you're waiting to hear from God. That's, that's marvelous. It's so deep. So profound. How do you say that in Greek? You know, and, and it kind of like leads to this serious thing. When, when in fact, Many of the times that I have said that, and many of the times that people have come and said that to me, I think the reality might land something more like this. No, you aren't. 
you're ignoring what you've already heard from God. And your parents didn't like it when you did that to them. You don't like it when your kids do that to you. How does God view what you're doing right now? And then to couch it in pseudo-hypocritical, pharisaical, religious language, like I'm waiting to hear from God. Now, don't get me wrong. I think waiting to hear from God is a viable exercise. But I think we take that phrase and we use it sometimes to cover up. I've heard from God. Don't like what I hear. That seems way out there. I'm going to keep waiting for something I like. Here's a little secret for you that isn't so secret. It's this. Act on what you know to do today. Act on what you know to do today, and God will fill in all that you don't know to do for the tomorrows. If God's given you this much to do, and it just says, this is what you're going to be doing, do it. But I don't know what I, don't know what I need for five. He won't give you five years from now stuff to today. That's not how he works. So many of you in so many different arenas, I love these stories. You, you didn't have a sense of what was out there. But what you knew to do was this. You, you just took a step, and, and, and you did the right thing, and then you did the right thing, and then you did the right thing. And as you kept taking steps, what happens? God's opening up more and more in front of you, right? I mean, haven't you seen that? When you see that, that's this principle of just, just obey what you know to do. There's so much in the scriptures. You are far more educated. I don't care if this is your first time in church. As an American, with all the things that we have available to us, you are far more educated in the scriptures and in the knowledge of what God would have for us to do than most people in the world and most people throughout history. We have more available to us in those arenas. It's a prideful step to just say, I'm waiting to hear from God, when really it's, I don't like what God's told me to do. That doesn't suit me very well. And so we wait for something else. One commentator said it this way, the benefits of grace and more grace are ours. Along the road, catch that part, along the road of obedience and more obedience. The grace the, the benefits of grace and more grace are ours along the road of obedience and more obedience. The God who says, here is my grace to receive, says in the same breath, here are my commands to obey. And then they just go hand in hand. Look at verse 7. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first two of James's ten commands are submit and resist. We're going to look at the resist portion of it next week a little bit more. We're going to land more on the submission part. But these both have to do with active allegiance, submitting and resisting, knowing whose side you're on. You better know whose side you're on if you're going to submit to the right side, right? And you better know who you're resisting. Sometimes as Christians, we can find ourselves resisting our commanding officer, pushing God away, pushing life away. And submitting to what? The one that wants to enslave us. The one that our Savior has rescued us from. And we get that inverted, and that's a deadly combination to invert those two. Now, the first and last trait of these Ten Commandments are this. Ready? Submit. And then the last one is humble yourself. Submit and humble yourself. It's like a humility sandwich. 
He has ten commands, and the opening one and the last one both have to do with this trait of humility. Humility is scorned by the world and necessary for heaven. Have you noticed how big of a deal pride and humility are to God? Pride and haughtiness and boasting, if you look up those kinds of words, you'll get tons of hits. And the humble and the contrite and the lowly, you'll get tons of hits. God talks a ton about this. Listen to Proverbs 6.16. There are six things that the Lord hates. You say you love the Savior. You want to get to know what your Savior hates. Then it says seven that are an abomination to him. First one out the gate. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. And hands that shed blood. I won't read the rest. But he lists pride amongst murder. Hands that shed innocent blood. You think pride's a big deal to God? I do. Here it says that God opposes the proud. He doesn't just tolerate, put up with, or forgive, or long-suffer. He opposes the proud. Pride's a big deal to God. I don't know all of the answers of why that's true, but let me throw an idea out to you as, as, to, as to the reason of this. The proud is someone who is showing themselves over other people. That's what pride is. And we've talked about this a lot in here. This can come in a real overt kind of a way. Beat your chest. Look at all we've done. Yada, 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 right? But it can also come in a real subversive kind of way. The whole idea of constantly belittling yourself and putting yourself first, you know, putting others up. And, no, I don't deserve that. I, this, I, that. Who are you talking about? Yourself. So you can do it from a real overt, aggressive way. You can do it from a real subversive kind of way. It looks like false humility, but all it is is pride couched in a, in a more introverted personality. It's thinking, caring, worrying about yourself, right? That's pride. So pride is showing oneself over. Submission is to be under obedience. So maybe a part of why it's such a giant deal here is that those two can't be mixed together. The very first and fundamental sin of Satan was rooted in pride. Agreed? He wanted to be like God. He then tempts uh, others with that same kind of thing. Look at the temptation in the garden with Adam and Eve. Look at the temptation of Jesus in, in, in the wilderness, right? Look, all this. I mean, you see, you can almost hear the heart of Satan. All this I'll give to you. He's offering what, what he longs for, and it's pride. Either you are the final authority or God is. Pride says, I'm over God. Submission says, I'm under God. A nation can say, one nation under God, or they can say, we are the final authority, we're over God. It seems interesting in our lifetime to see it. You feel it, you see it, it's just there. There's one final authority. Who is it? You can't have it both ways. This reminds me so much of last week. You cannot be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. If you are a friend of the world, you're by, you're by default an enemy of God. And if you are a friend of God, by default, the world will hate you the same way it crucified Jesus. You can't have it both ways. So it is with pride and humility. Matthew said in, uh, or Jesus said in Matthew 5, started with what's called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus let us know over and over a prerequisite for getting the kingdom of God is that you would humble yourself. He went so far as to say like this little child, if you don't become like a little child, you don't get in. It's all nonsense to you. You're locked out if you don't receive it humbly. Maybe that's why it's a big deal to God. Required for kingdom living, required for forgiveness, is recognizing and admitting need. The very thing a proud person doesn't want to do and will not do and cannot do is admit need. Those who believe themselves to be healthy don't seek out, much less receive help from a physician or anyone else, right? You already think you're righteous. You don't hunger and thirst after it from a Savior. Now, I want to wrap up our time by giving you six, uh, five verses that essentially take this word happily humble. You don't see happy and humble together very often. Again, as a world concept, devoid of the gospel, those who are humble, it, it's a trait that people kind of want to like and think is kind of a good thing, but you don't elevate it. There's just not a lot of humility conferences around. People don't flock to this topic. You don't think you're going to be happily humble. But the Christian really is happily humble in the grace of God. Let me give you the first one. This will just kind of sketch out some things. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 26-31. You can write these down. I'll put them on the screen. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because of Him, God. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's number one. We're happily humble because God gets the credit. Those who really understand this and have lived this verse are happy to give God the credit. You want to force me into a corner and boast? I'm going to boast in God who made this nothing something by His grace. That's what I'll boast in. The happily humble are so because God gets the credit. Here's the second, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 6 is this, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. There was bickering going on. Not from the leaders per se, but from the followers. We follow him. No, his blog's better. His book's a bestseller. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We're happily humble because all that we have is a gift of God. Has God given you a really sharp mind? That's a gift. Use it for his glory. Has he given you a really winsome personality and and an introvert that can really take a single person and go deep with them and be a great listener? That's a gift from God. Use it for his glory. He made you an utter goofball. That's from God. Use it for his glory. What do you have that you did not receive? Is God sovereignly in control of your heart over this last half hour, 45 minutes? 
is. Even than anything to earn the fact that you have your sight right now. That you'll go taste and enjoy the meal. All of that, just a gift of God. We're happily humble because all that we have is a gift. In a couple of weeks, James 4, 13, James is going to say that our lives are a mist. A mist. Try to quantify that. Try to gather that up and say, look how great this is. Your life is a vapor. There it goes. If you have lots, don't be proud. Boast in the cross. If you have little, don't despair. They're gifts from God. I want to invite Jesse up right now. As Jesse comes up, he's going to actually share some words and some experiences from Mexico uh, this last summer. Um, listen to James 1, 9 through 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. We live in this upside-down kingdom. Jesse's going to share some of what he saw um, just down in Mexico over that. Uh, my expectations before going down to Mexico were mixed. Uh, it was my first business trip ever, 29 years old, and uh, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't even look at pictures of the orphanage. Because partly I wanted to be completely surprised, but I couldn't help imagining what it would be like. Uh, I expected to see children that were sad, detached, and neglected. Not necessarily by Grace Children's Home, but I imagine that these kids would show some signs of emotional distress from being uh, displaced or abused. Uh, once I arrived, I was completely surprised. Uh, the orphanage was like a mansion compared to the surrounding uh, area, houses. The children were playing and laughing all day long, and I mean all day long. Uh, the children and staff, they interacted like a family. Um, everyone pitched in to clean, cook, and do general uh, chores and tasks. And the older children watched after the younger children. And they all seemed to get along very well. Uh, I spent some quality time with the kids, mostly after dinner since I was doing a lot of work. And uh, just a quick story about one child in particular. His name is Christian, and he's a 10-year-old boy. And he had been at Grace Children's Home for about a year. Um, when he arrived, he had never been to school. And he had spent three months in the hospital after being beaten by his father. He was a really nice kid, uh, but not quiet. <laughs> he was definitely not quiet. He had bundles of energy. Him and another child about his age and I would play. Uh, they called it Toro Mechanico, which is a like, mechanical bull, which basically means they would ride me until I bucked them off. <laughs> it was uh, pretty exhausting, and then it always turned into a wrestling match. Uh, the day before the last uh, day, Christian was studying with a volunteer at GCH, Grace Children's Home. And I walked by, pointed at him, and said, Better study hard, because I'm going to get you later. Just like that. And uh, he replied something in Spanish. It was a very low tone. He was just staring at his paper. And I was nervous. I thought I scared him. I I was like, oh, I went too far. And the, the volunteer laughed, and she told me, you said you're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> I still laugh about that. Uh, what's truly inspiring to me about the trip was how God is truly in control and how backwards we are here in the United States. Uh, we're so wealthy with possessions and money, but so devoid of spiritual wealth in many ways. Most of these kids here in the U.S. would be completely different path. Uh, they'd be caught in a system of political correctness and spiritual emptiness. Many may have turned into gang life or life without real purpose, which we believe here as believers is a life without Christ. At Grace Children's Home, those children get the word of God poured into them. And I mean poured into them every day. 
They are loved and nurtured and cared for. They're given a private education because of generous donations. They are truly blessed. Many of them sing worship songs at night and are asked very, they are asking very deep spiritual questions. They're being led closer to God through Grace Children's Home. Their tragedy transformed into a blessing. Amen. It was humbling to say the least um, that at our lowest of low, God is always in control, trying to bring us closer to him. Uh, by the end of the trip, I've gone through a complete paradigm shift in my outlook on these kids and their situation. Yes, these kids have a terrible lot in life. They have no parents, something that many of us take for granted. <clears throat> but instead of questioning, why did these kids go through such a life? I came back, finding myself praising God for the good he is doing in their lives through TCH. Thanks, Jeff. Happily humble. Look at Colossians 3. Colossians 3 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We're happily humble in the grace of God because we are forgiven and gifted undeservedly. I want you to think about the last time that you were forgiven or given a gift completely undeserved and out of the blue. I'll tell you the response that welled up in me. The the last one I really thought of was this. We just had a social worker come this last week and do what's part of mandatory in adoption, which is to have follow-up placement visits. And one of the questions was this, how is the community treating you? And what she was looking for is sometimes adoptive families, especially if it's a parent adoption, like it is in ours, receive some criticism, receive some looks, receive a vibe, receive scorn, receive some um, you know, different kinds of prejudice that go on. And our answer was this. Not only are we not receiving that, um, as, as I thought about how it's been when we've come home, I've been so overwhelmed at the giant community and support that we have to, to, to go forward in this. When we came home, a party was thrown, a giant welcome party for Kaya and Eli, where we got to go and just be blessed by many of you with gifts and with love and with affirmation and words written in a book, we cannot wait when our kids come of age to say, look, I know that was a hurtful comment that someone said to you. That's going to be part of their life. You're just an orphan. You don't have real parents. Those kinds of things. We're going to get to break out the book and say, let me just show you how excited you were received, not just by us, you know that, but by a whole community that God's given to you. You know what I walked away from the Adam's house that day? I walked away humbled. When you receive a gift that's undeserved, 
When you receive forgiveness that's undeserved, it wells up humility. That's the response. Here's a little aside. If you've prayed a prayer, filled out a card, walked an aisle sometime long ago, and you've never been, you've never had that welled up feeling of humility, I wonder if you've really understood what was really forgiven. I wonder if you really understand the gift that was given. So many people I've talked to have said, I've tried Jesus, Dave, I really have. I've tried your church thing, it just doesn't work for me. Sometimes with a little questioning and needling and pushing, it's, it's, you, you, you're rejecting something you've never really understood or really received. When you receive a gift like this, it forms in you, by God's grace, happy, humble hearts that are filled with compassion and kindness and meekness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among ourselves, Neighborhood Bible Church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of, of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Number four is this. We're happily humble because we're free now to serve like Jesus did. We're free now to view others and to find the rich enjoyment in finding out about other people. We're not hung up on ourselves so much anymore. It's so exhausting to constantly be positioning yourself to how other people view you. I've struggled with that for a long time. That's a tiring lifestyle. Most of the time, that group over there, they're not even thinking about you anyways. Or talking about you. So stop worrying about it. God frees you to serve like Jesus. The way Jesus served was he got underneath. He got low and he lifted up. And that's how we're service as well. Number five is this. Mark chapter 10. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Many in this world don't want to submit to anyone. They're looking for one thing. How do I get higher on the ladder? Right? How do I get it so more people are reporting to me than I am reporting to people? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're happily humble because we recognize and celebrate true greatness. And I tell you what, it lands like a beacon in this valley. When you see true greatness, when you see God's greatness in this way, it's amazing. I want to invite the band up right now. We're going to sing a song called My Offering. And as we sing My Offering, 
We're going to have the ushers take up the offering. We thought it would be appropriate. Here's what's interesting, though, as we sing a song about my offering. And as many of us engage in worship by giving money to the Lord's work, we're going to sing this line. All of me, this is my offering. All of me. Not 10% of me. Not 12 or 15 or 20% of me, because I've grown in the sacrificial giving department. But all of me. It's all yours, God. I'm happily submitted to you. It would be awkward, but it would be biblically accurate if we all just climbed it in the offering bag. That's what we're offering. That really is it. Just put your whole self in there. Not a little sliver of a pie. Not a little portion of your week. Not a little section of your stuff. But all of it. Happily submitted to God. Read this quote and then we'll sing. It's by Augustine. It's not that we keep His commandments first and then He loves us. Or then He loves. But that He loves us and then we keep His commandments. This is that grace which is revealed to the humble, but hidden from the proud. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You have revealed Your will to children. I thank You, Father, for many in this room who would be able to stand and give testimony to the fact that they weren't seeking You out. They had rejected versions of You and outright You Yourself for years. And it was by the grace of God that they were pulled out of the mud pit, cleansed and purified and set on the new path, brought up to a seat at the table and enjoy fellowship with you. Father, for those in this room this morning who are unclear if they are true children of you or not, would you let it be that they would not rest until they settle this issue. I thank you that you hide this from the proud. I thank you that you hide this from those who are the haves. And I thank you, God, for revealing it to the humble. Would you keep us a humble people, a needy people? Do whatever means necessary to keep us at a point of need and walking by faith in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.